0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church more information about the Ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org Good morning everyone as I mentioned last week we're launching into another kind of brief series we're going to only go about three or four weeks in this book of Esther before we get into our Advent series that we're going to be looking at in December to prepare our hearts for the Christmas celebration. And so um, that's what we want to do this morning is to just launch into that series. And uh, we're not going to do a scripture reading as we traditionally do, but we're going to look at the text sort of spread out throughout the message. And also it says chapter one, but uh, I'm going to extend a little bit into chapter two as well up to about verse 18 so that we could kind of take bigger chunks at a time since we'll only be spending a few weeks on this series. So let's go ahead and pray and uh, turn uh, to God's word in this uh, moment of worship. Father, we want to invite that work of your Holy Spirit to be done in our hearts to just reveal to us your heart and to help us to understand the um, implications of your truth. As we look at the lives of those you've touched in our history and see how you have moved in the past, We pray that it would open our eyes to see how you want to move in our lives and the things that you want to do in us. Help us to grapple with this doctrine of your sovereignty, that you are in control of all things, and to understand what the implication of that is in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Esther takes place during a period of Israel's history known as the exile. And for many years, the Israelites were warned by God to repent because they were constantly straying and going into sin. And so through these prophets, God was saying to repent. Otherwise, you know, God is going to bring judgment on you. But as many of you may know, the Israelites didn't repent. They continued in their rebellion. And so finally, God punishes them by sending these foreign armies to conquer them. Now, the northern kingdom, which is in blue in this map, Uh, which was known as Israel, uh, fell to this kingdom known as the Assyrians. These ten northern tribes that made up this nation of Israel uh, were scattered to the winds, basically. The Assyrians took them and just relocated them all over their empire. And the truth is that these tribes would never be reconstituted as a nation again. They would go down in history as the ten lost tribes of Israel. About 140 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was made up of the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, fell. Not to the Assyrians, but to another empire known as the Babylonians. The Babylonians had a similar practice to the Assyrians in that they took the majority of these Israelites, everyone except for the elderly, the infirmed, sort of the, uh, the useless of society, the dregs, and they relocated them to Babylon and took them in captivity. It's interesting that both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were conquered by these empires that practiced this unusual relocation technique of taking whoever they conquered and putting them, displacing them in another part of their empire. If you kind of go back in the history, one of the central promises of God to the Israelites Uh, To the Israelites of God, particularly to their forefather Abraham, was this land, this promised land that he was going to give them. But with that promise came a condition to keep the covenant that they had made with God. And the warning was this, if you do not keep this covenant, I will remove you from this land. And so true to his word, God allowed them to be conquered by these nations that exiled their people that they defeated into foreign lands and so the story of Esther takes place about a hundred years into this Babylonian captivity when the Israelites had been displaced in a foreign land in the in the kingdom of Babylon now during this Babylonian captivity the Babylonians themselves became conquered by another group of people known as the the Persians and these Persians quickly became the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. Their, their kingdom stretched all the way from Ethiopia down to the subcontinent of India. It was an enormous, powerful empire. Um, they, were, they didn't practice this thing of relocating people. And so under the leadership of King Cyrus, he actually said, you know, if you want, go back to your home country. Go back to Israel if that is your desire to rebuild your capital city and rebuild your land. What's kind of sad about that whole story is that even though the Israelites were allowed to return to to Jerusalem, uh, return to Israel, uh, they had grown very comfortable in this foreign land. They had built their houses, planted their fields, so that in truth a lot of them chose not to go back to Israel, but they stayed in Persia. Now, almost all of the books in the Old Testament that deal with this period deal with the group of people that went back to Jerusalem and talk about how they fared there. But Esther, interestingly, is the only book in the Bible that tells us what happened to the Jews that chose to remain in Persia. Now, one of the major themes of this book of Esther is this hiddenness of God the hiddenness of God. You know, I, I think there is this often this misconception of the Old Testament times that it was a period, an extended period of thousands of years when it was almost like every day you could wake up and you could see a miracle of God. That supernatural stuff was happening left and right. But if you read the Old Testament a little more carefully, that's actually not the history of Israel. There were clearly these intensive moments in Israel's history when God was working really powerfully. So you can look at the days of Moses and the ten plagues of Egypt and the wilderness wanderings when these great miracles were happening. Or you can look at the days of the prophets Elijah and Elisha and see some really amazing things happening. But here's the truth. Even in the Bible times, there were long stretches when there weren't many recorded miracles of supernatural events happening when basically it seemed as if God was silent and he wasn't very visible among his people. In fact, that story of Elijah on Mount Carmel when he prayed fire down from heaven that burned that altar up, that is actually the last public miracle recorded in the Old Testament. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. There are some smaller private miracles That happened to individuals. But in terms of that kind of public, dramatic display of God's power, Mount Carmel was the end of it in the Old Testament. In fact, everything after that, you begin to see a diminishing of God's presence. Not a whole lot of recorded miracles. Not a whole lot of angel sightings. Not a lot of declarations of God revealing himself to a particular people. And by the time that you reach this exile era that we're in with this book of Esther, there are no miracles recorded at all during this period. There's nothing dramatic like Mount Carmel happening in this time, at least that's highlighted by Scripture itself. No clear supernatural intervention like fire from heaven. There is none of that. In fact, um, God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, which bothers a lot of people, you know? How could this be in Scripture and there's not even an acknowledgement of the existence of God at all in this book? Um, Not only that, but Esther makes no reference to prayer. Um... There's no miracles recorded in the book of Esther or any clear supernatural intervention is never acknowledged in this book of Esther. It never once says, and God did this. There is no reference to worship or any of the other themes that are so prominent in the other books of the Bible. It really disturbed a lot of people to make even some people say, this book does not belong in the Bible. (laughs) It it really shouldn't be. It's, It's fine to include it in the Jewish histories, But this book does not belong in the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why is there such a palpable absence of an acknowledgement of God in the book of Esther? The story of Esther seems to be almost completely driven by the actions of the human actors in the drama. There is seemingly no need to invoke God in any of it. Esther's own name sort of gives us a clue to why God's name may not be mentioned in the book. Her Hebrew birth name was actually not Esther. It was Hadassah, which in Hebrew means myrtle, which is a flowering plant. But she was also, because she was living in Persia, given a Persian name. And that name was Esther, which in Persian was related to their pagan goddess Ishtar. Okay? But here is the interesting thing is that Esther sounds identical to a Hebrew word actually which if you translate it means I am hiding or I am hidden. It's interesting, right? It's, a, it's actually a Persian name but it it exactly parallels phonetically a Hebrew name a Hebrew word, I am hiding. I am hidden. Blaise Pascal, who was a man of faith, said any religion which does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. And any religion which does not offer the reason of it is not instructive. Now again, like I said, Pascal was a believer. And yet, he made this claim that any religion that doesn't acknowledge this sense of God's hiddenness is not being honest with the experience of humanity in this world. In other words, why doesn't God reveal himself more clearly? Especially in those moments when we feel we need him. Why is it that so often he seems to hide his face? I have to confess that this hiddenness of God has been at times a stumbling block for even myself. I have experienced some intense moments that I don't know how to describe other than miraculous. I can tell you testimonies of things that I have witnessed firsthand that defy scientific explanation. It's I was there in the moment, and yet I still can't explain what I saw and what I witnessed. I have also had moments with God and his sensing his presence so strong that I felt like I could just reach out and touch him, as if He was physically right there next to me. But I have also had seasons of desperate searching for God, for a God that, as far as I could tell, felt to me like he was hiding from me. And that's the honest truth. Brian Gregory says, On the surface, it often appears as if God is absent or hidden from view. Many people look for clues and traces, but find mostly that God is very hard, if not impossible, to find. As a result, many people, Christians included, simply default into thinking of the world in reductionistic, secular ways. And they go, then go about their lives as if God were not really involved, even if they would never say so out loud. After all, the world really does seem to operate merely according to natural scientific laws events do seem to be driven by historically explainable forces of politics, economics, psychology, and sociology. Life does seem to be governed by human choices and natural processes. By most people's accounting, that is simply how the world works. And because it is, it is also easy to understand how many Christians end up being more or less functional deists believing that God exists and is, quote, up there, but going about the normal matters of daily life as if he were not really involved much at all. And I wonder, does this describe your approach in your life? At some highest level, you acknowledge that God exists and that he is there and that he's in control, but in truth, you don't really expect him to show up in any kind of meaningful way in your life. And you don't necessarily feel the need to invoke God, to understand the events that are unfolding in your life. In other words, although you claim to believe in God, for all intents and purposes, your life functions basically not all that differently than the way it would for an atheist. Another way that we can say all this is to simply ask the question... Does your belief that God is in control make any real-world difference in how you live your life? Does it? How does it impact the choices that you make, the values that you hold, the risks that you take? This is a question that Esther would have to confront in her own life. And we're going to see that although God's name is never mentioned in this book, his fingerprint is everywhere in the story. So let's jump into the story and unpack it and see what we can learn from these first couple chapters. It starts here. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. The king of Persia, Xerxes, was the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world at that time. And to demonstrate his wealth and power, he holds this outrageous six-month banquet glorifying himself. I mean, it is insane. A six-month unending party in his honor. Then after that six-month party is done, he holds another week-long banquet in his castle. And the wine is flowing freely in these goblets of gold. And everywhere you look is gold. He had furniture made of gold. (laughs) That's insane if you think about it. Um, Precious gems, marble, purple cloth, everything. Um, And in verse 10 and 12, it says, on the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, mehuman Biztha, there are a lot of names in these texts, so it's, bear with me, all right? Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcas, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So after six months of honoring himself, Xerxes is not only drunk with wine, but he is drunk with self-glory. And in that state of mind, in that drunkenness, he orders his wife Vashti to be brought out and paraded in front of his banquet guests so that all these drunken men could stare at her lustfully okay because she was beautiful in other words in that state of mind he basically treats his wife like a piece of property that he owns like everything else he owns in this known world and he just wants to use her as an object to make himself look better and say walk around, you know, sashay and and let all the guys check you out and see what a hot wife I have, you know? Vashti must have been quite an amazing woman because to refuse the king in those days was a crime punishable by death. But she refuses to come. saying, I'm not going to play your silly games. And I'm not going to walk out there so these drunken men can stare at me. Well, filled with rage, Xerxes gathers his council of wise men to figure out how to deal with this problem. So in verse 13, it goes on, it says, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea, who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women so that they will despise their husbands and say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position for someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. You've got to see the humor in all of this, you know, really. It's hard to believe that these were the brightest minds in the entire Persian Empire speaking. Oh, king, this is not good. This is not good at all. You better nip this thing in the bud. Because what Queen Vashti has done, it's going to lead to nothing less than radical feminism in the Persian Empire. Who knows what's going to happen? Bra-burning parties, (laughs) women demanding the right to vote, dogs marrying cats. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's going to be chaos in the land. So ban her from your presence and find a, a better wife who's more respectful. And then make a law in the entire empire that says every wife should obey their husband. That's how you fix this problem. You can imagine how silly it must have been to have these messengers go all over the kingdom declaring that women should obey their husbands. Woman, go bring me my wine. Stop complaining. King said so. <laughs> it's like, I'm sure that worked really well in most households. It's kind of interesting to me that at the start of chapter 1, at the start of this Esther story, Uh, King Xerxes looms larger than life. He is the most powerful man in the entire world, flaunting his wealth and his power in this six-month party of self-glorification. But by the end of the celebration, what we're left with is actually a rather pathetic man whose pride destroyed his marriage. And he ends up looking like a fool in front of his entire empire you know reading through this first chapter i couldn't help but be reminded of the mood of our country right now during this past election cycle The the really the profound sense of disappointment felt by so many americans on both sides of the aisle whether you're republican or democrat or even independent and what i kept reading over and over again and hearing in the news cycles was Um, are these the two best candidates that our nation is capable of producing? Is this the best we've got for our country? And I think the closer we looked and scrutinized each candidate, whether it was Trump or whether it was Clinton, the sadder the truth became, wasn't it? Whether it was about destroying emails or comments made in a bus with a live mic about women. Um... This is the truth of our earthly leaders, isn't it? In our desperate hope for real leadership, the reality of the politicians we're often offered so rarely lives up to the reputation of what we actually long for in our leadership. And I think that was true in Esther's time as well. The most powerful man in the world at that time ends up looking like a fool because of his character. Because of his heart. Well, the story continues in chapter two. Verse one, later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. That word "remember" is very important, because it isn't a word that just translates into recalling facts about the past, but it actually captures an emotional state of nostalgia or longing. In other words, once Xerxes sobered up, wasn't drunk anymore, he realized what he had done and how he treated his wife. And there was this, I think, this very deep sense of regret, of sorrow that came into his heart. And so it goes on in verses 2 to 4. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. In other words, seeing how sad the king looked, his attendants had this plan to find a new queen for their king. And the plan basically consists of combing through the entire empire and snatching up every young, beautiful woman that they can find with or against her will and throwing her into one huge harem. And then after a year of beauty treatments, one by one, they, quote, audition before the king, which basically means that he's going to bed every one of these women one night after another, like trying on pairs of shoes at the store, until he finds one that he likes. And he says, you're going to become my queen. It's interesting that there's absolutely no consideration given to this woman's character what family she comes from, whether she's from a noble line, none of this seems to matter to Xerxes. He only has three criteria for picking this queen. She has to be young, she has to be a virgin, and she has to be hot. Okay? That's all he really cares about. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to see as the story of Esther unfolds is to get a picture of What a difficult and brutal life it was for women in ancient times, you know? I mean, you were basically treated like property. You were not even like a human being if you were a woman in those times. And so it is in this nationwide search for a next queen to replace Vashti that we're introduced to Esther and her cousin Mordecai. In verses 5 to 7 it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem, by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up, because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, when her father and mother died and so Esther grew up as an orphan raised by her older cousin Mordecai who became like a father to her and because of her exceptional beauty she became swept up in all of this drama to find the next queen and she was for a year's period prepared like a ornament along with hundreds if not thousands of other young, beautiful women in the empire, all for the pleasure of this one man. And for a minute, I just want you to put yourself in Esther's shoes. Having to grow up in a foreign country in exile, not because of anything you had done, but because of the sins of your forefathers, And then in exile, losing your mother and father. We don't know how, but she lost them and became an orphan. And now being thrown into a harem, like a piece of meat, waiting for her audition night before the king. You know, who could blame Esther if she struggled to find any purpose or meaning in her life? thinking about what she went through. How could God possibly be in this? How could there be any meaning to what's happened of my life? It's all nonsense. It's all chaos. It's all craziness. Where is God in any of this? In 1982, World Championship boxer Ray Boom Boom Mancini Had a title fight with this contender, Korean contender, by the name of um, Kim Duk Koo, and uh, it was a brutal 15-round fight. And at the very end of this fight, Mancini hit Kim with a right hand so hard that Kim actually died. He died. And in the post-fight interview, as the reporters were trying to gauge how Mancini felt about killing a man in the boxing ring, Mancini said something interesting to the reporters. And he said this, Sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Now there's a quote that invites some serious reflection. You punch a guy so hard that you kill him and you ask yourself, why did God do that? Now, this is actually a serious theological question. Did God really have a hand in Kim's death? You know, it's tempting to laugh off Mancini's comment as ridiculous. But if we really believe that God is in control of everything, isn't that a fair question? After all, Mancini didn't go into the ring intending to kill another guy, and yet that's exactly what happened. Was it an accident of fate? Was it God? If you were walking on a beach, And just in that very moment that you were walking under a palm tree, a coconut fell and hit you on the head. It wouldn't be unreasonable to wonder, what are you trying to tell me, God? (laughs) Because that was just weird, you know? That just cannot be coincidence. That just in that second that I happened to be under that coconut, it happened to fall. But as you gain consciousness and look around, you actually discover that it wasn't just chance, but someone threw that coconut at you. I doubt you would be wondering, why did God do that? (laughs) I don't think you would go there. You would say, why did you do that? Why would you throw a coconut at me and want to hurt me? This is the messiness of trying to understand this doctrine of God's sovereignty. We may sense that God is at work when unusual coincidences and other strange circumstances happen in our lives. But like Esther, much of what we experience in life is a direct result of, frankly, bad choices that other people make, which ends up affecting us. In fact, we live in a broken world filled with this kind of problem, don't we? Of all of our mutual sins affecting each other, hurting each other. And the question is, do I have to invoke God to try to understand the junk in my life? I I don't really feel like I have to because, frankly, you're to blame. You know, you did this to me. Don't blame God. And it starts to beg the question, can I really believe in a deeper purpose, that God is really orchestrating anything for my good in the midst of all of that garbage and all of the workplace politics that's going on when I go to work and and the constant fighting with me and my spouse and and the horror of our home life sometimes? And do I really have to even try to look to God for an answer in any of that? Isn't it just a messed up world causing messed up problems for all of us? And yet, as we're going to see as the story of Esther unfolds, even in the midst of the intentional harm that some people may want to do against you, God can still accomplish his will in your life. It's like Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, out of their jealousy toward him. In Genesis 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Even in the chaos of a world filled with people who are out to get you and want to harm you, what we're going to discover in the story of Esther is that God can still accomplish his greatest plan that he has set for you in your life. There's another angle to the story, though, that I think is subtler, but we have to acknowledge is real. There's no denying that as a foreigner, as an orphan, as a woman, Esther experienced a lot of abuse that wasn't her fault. But there are also hints in the story that Esther wasn't exactly an innocent victim in everything that she was going through. You know, when you look at the book of Daniel, which was also during this exile period, it's really different in a sense that Daniel unequivocally along with his friends took a stand and knew that as God's chosen people, they were not going to conform to the pressures that were being put on them by being foreigners in exile. They said, you could kill us. We're not going to eat your food We have very specific food laws that we're required to obey that God has given us. We're not going to bow to your idols. We're not going to do any of that, and if you kill us, kill us. But that isn't what Esther actually does. In fact, what's interesting is Esther chooses to hide her Jewish identity. She's having an identity crisis. So she doesn't reveal to anyone in the king's palace that she's a Jew. The implications of this are profound. This means that she didn't keep kosher with the foods that she was eating. It probably means she didn't observe the Sabbath. She probably didn't pray. She probably didn't do any of this. And the truth is, even this idea of one night with a king, it doesn't seem like she was actually struggling with that all that much. If you look in verse nine of Esther chapter two, it says this, talking about her relationship with this eunuch, Haggai. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. It's important. It doesn't say Esther found favor in the eyes of Haggai the eunuch, which is the most common phrasing in scripture. But it actually says she won his favor. In other words, I think Esther engineered this. I think she worked the situation to gain the favor of the eunuch to get herself in the most favorable position to be selected by this king when he slept with her. In other words, rather than taking a stand against the system, Esther seemed to be a more than willing participant in this game that she found herself in, doing whatever she had to do to impress the king on the night that she was going to sleep with him. She stopped living like a Jew, so that she could blend in with the pagans around her. She compromised her identity as God's chosen people in the hopes of trying to make a better life for herself. And if you think, well, I think you're going too far, that's too hard on Esther, just wait until we get to chapters 3 and 4, and I think you'll see where her heart really was. What I'm saying is, is this. I think our temptation... It is to constantly make heroes of the people that we read about in the Bible. But when you really peel back the covers and look deeply at the lives of these men and women that God used, often you realize they weren't such great heroes. They had flaws, just like you and I. They were human. The truth is, I think it's hard to get around the conclusion that in many ways, Esther compromised. She tried to make a better life for herself. And she did everything in her human means to make it happen. And yet, I think this is another message that we're going to discover in the book of Esther. Is that God's sovereign care over us is not only greater than the mess of the harm that others do to us, but it's also greater than the harm that's self-inflicted that we bring on ourselves because of our own failures and sins and compromise. Brian Gregory says this, God's grace is bigger than any compromises we've made. Even the biggest mistakes can be redeemed for his purposes. Perhaps the unwanted pregnancy becomes a gift that transforms a young woman's life. Perhaps that child will be used for great things in God's plan. Perhaps a disease can be used by God to refocus a person's attention on the things that really matter and to help guard him from further self-destructive behaviors that would otherwise be all too easy for him to fall into. Perhaps God will use the guilt and regret to open up a young woman to a deeper appreciation of his grace in Christ that would have otherwise been possible for her to grasp. What I'm saying is, is this. I don't think any of us has a clean st- slate here. I think all of us at some level have a checkered past. And The truth is when you dwell on that past you can go to some pretty dark places. You can say my life has taken a turn that's so bad that it's, I can't recover from it. And I've counseled enough people in the church to know how dark some of those thoughts can be. I married the wrong person and it's over for me. I never should have had this child. I chose the wrong career, and now it's too late to start over. And I think one of the things that we're going to see in the story of Esther is that those conclusions are not warranted. That when we realize that there is a God in heaven who loves us and cares for us, his sovereign care can heal the deepest brokenness of our past. Amen? Whether it's a result of our own sins and failures or the sins and failures of others, the message of Esther is that God's sovereignty is greater than all of that. In our lives, there are going to be moments when God seems hidden as if he has abandoned us. Whenever God seems far away, I think here's the other problem is we're always so tempted to blame ourselves. It's my fault. That God is not near and the truth is sometimes that may be the reason is our own sin but I'm gonna argue to you that there are plenty of examples in the Bible of righteous people like Isaiah like Job who were never accused of being in the wrong particularly for God's withdrawal and yet they experienced his hiddenness and it makes me wonder maybe there's something vital about God's hiddenness that is important to our spiritual growth and our walk with God. Maybe what God is saying is, when you don't feel my presence and my power, trust in my promises for you. I think the confidence that we have in that promise of God is because in a very profound way, Jesus himself Experienced the hiddenness of God when he went to the cross. Philip Yancey writes this. At Gethsemane and Calvary, in some inexpressible way, God himself was forced to confront the hiddenness of God. God striving with God is how Martin Luther summarized the cosmic struggle played out on two cross beams of wood. On that dark night, God learned for himself the full extent of what it means to feel God-forsaken. In other words, in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, God did something rather profound. He entered into our human experience to know what it feels like to be abandoned by God on that cross. And by going through his own harrowing journey into the hiding face of god he purchased for us the confidence and assurance that god's presence is always with us and that's what we want to acknowledge as we come to the lord's table this morning so let's pray